All right, good morning, everyone. My wife Elaine and I are delighted to be here with you at Bethany Grace, and uh, as Steve mentioned several times over the next couple of months, uh, we used to live over in Montgomery County for about 19 years we were there. Uh, I'm originally from southern Indiana, grew up on the farm there, and she's from Illinois. And so every time we got a day off, when we lived in my, over by Philly, every time we got a day off, we always came to Lancaster County because it reminds us of, of home. Uh, there's enough cows and corn and smells in the springtime that we, we always felt welcome here. Four years ago, we, uh, we had been serving a ministry there, and God in His sweet providence uh, brought that ministry to a close, and we were kind of practicing our welcome to Walmart speeches after 19 years in, in higher education over there. And uh, the Lord, in His beautiful plans for us, brought us to Lancaster County. We live in Mannheim now, so when, when we get a day off, we're not sure where to go because we're, we're already here, you know, in, in Lancaster County. Uh, but since coming here to work at Lancaster Bible College and Capital Seminary and Graduate School, uh, the Lord has uh, given us opportunities, three different occasions now, for an extended period of time to help local churches that are uh, in a transition between senior pastoral leadership. And uh, our, our hearts are in the local church. I mean, we're, we're training people to serve the local church, and our hearts are in the local church. We love the church. We love God's people. And um, it's, it's a joy for us to get to help and just be, a, be an encouragement along the way. I, and I just want to encourage you all this morning with this, this fact that God is in the business of giving us beauty for ashes, right? And so the disappointments and the, the tough seasons that come along in all of our lives, both personally and corporately as, as the church, as God's people, uh, you can rest assured that God is in this. Uh, God is working good, both for your leaders who were here formally and your, your elder team that is leading you now and whoever that next person is that God is going to call here or persons that God is going to call here to serve on the staff. You are... You are God's flock. Christ is your shepherd. You are his body. He is the head. And so you're not going to be forsaken. God's going to work good through this time. Uh, it's been our joy to see in these, these three extended seasons over the last four years of helping churches, it's been our joy to see that instead of negative things happening, that the, the people of God in these local congregations actually became more deeply unified, people that might have been kind of on the margins begin serving, begin being involved. And we, we've actually seen churches grow during this, this, uh, this time of transition and then rejoice together to see the next leader, you know, that God brings. And I know you're all trusting him uh, for that. So uh, we are delighted to get an opportunity here over the next several weeks uh, on and off to be, to be here and, and at least take some of the preaching, teaching load to be a help to the folks that are on the, on the ground here doing the, uh, the day-in, day-out ministry work uh, among your congregation. So today we're going to talk about spring cleaning. Does that make anybody shudder or uh, like, ugh? John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. It's page 882 in the uh, Bible provided for you there in the pew. And it is that time of year again, and I, I just wonder here in Lancaster County, why do they schedule mud sales and spring cleaning at roughly the same time, right? Like it's all, uh, all kind of mixed in. Maybe the, the spring cleaning is because of the mud sales. But uh, here's, a, uh, 
Here's a lady who was cleaning out her spice rack, and she says, this is why you rotate your spices, people. The oldest of these expired in 1978. Hashtag spring cleaning. My wife and I were joking when we saw this. I think that's her mother's cabinet. When we cleaned her house out a couple of years ago, I think there might have been some 60s in, in those spices in there. You know, spring cleaning sort of touches at an anxiety we all have, and that is... Um, we don't want people to see our mess, right? So, I mean, what, why, why do we clean our houses? Someone said, I read earlier, uh, if, you're, if you're feeling like your house is dirty, watch an episode or two of Hoarders, and then you'll feel great about uh, what your place looks like. But I think there's, a, there's an anxiety in all of our hearts. I mean, for one thing, we, we want to live in a clean environment, so that's why we, we clean. But we also know that from time to time, company comes to visit us. And if you're coming to my house, I think my wife and I are both this way, we want it to be like super clean, like more clean than when just the two of us are there by ourselves. We want it to be super clean. And I think there's something uh, deep down in us that, that fears if you see a mess at our place, you're going to look at us and say, really? I mean, <laughs> really? You, you live like this? And you're not going to like us, and you may even reject us. Well, spiritually speaking, in every human heart, there's a parallel to the anxiety we, we might feel about spring cleaning, and that is uh, sort of the issue of the cleaning that needs to take place internally in all of our lives. Every one of us as humans, we're all image bearers created in God's image. Every one of us have baked into our DNA, even the people who say they don't believe in God, every one of us have baked into our DNA, we know he's there. We, we have this awareness. There is a creator, and he's given us guidelines to live by, and we've all messed up. We all have a mess. And so there's that feeling of anxiety, like if he's the creator, and when my life ends, I'm going to him, is he going to see and know my mess and reject me as a result of that? Well, our scripture this morning is going to help us think about spring cleaning, because it's a story about Jesus doing some spring cleaning. There's the obvious spring cleaning he's going to do kind of in a physical sense in this story here in John 2, but I want you to think together with me today about a deeper kind of cleaning that this text is pointing us to, and it's good news for every one of us who ever felt anxious about standing before God. Now, every good story follows a certain pattern. You've known this from the time you were three years old and your dad or mom tucked you into bed with a story at night. Story begins with a setting, but then very early in the story, something happens to produce tension or conflict. The bad guy comes into town, and the good guy or the good people are now threatened. And that conflict is going to get worse and worse and worse until it rises to the very climax of conflict when it looks like all is lost and the good people are going to lose and the bad guy is going to win. But then, at least in a happy story, there's a sudden and surprising reversal and the good guy wins and the bad people get what's coming to them. That's in a comedy or a romance kind of a story. Happy ending. A Disney story, right? <laughs> There are tragedy stories as well. The Bible writers, both the Hebrew writers and the, the, the men writing the documents in the New Testament through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
They're good storytellers, and that's why two-thirds of God's Word, 66% by some estimates, is given to us in the form of stories. And it's not because God thought we'd be bored, you know, with a doctrinal sort of a treatise, but rather, when we hear the story, we find ourselves in the story, we relate to the story, and we, we enter more deeply into it so that we remember more profoundly the, the theological truth that God wants to teach us. Well, I want you to listen to the story today. Instead of just you know, looking at the verses, let's, let's kind of ride through the story together. And I want you to pay particular attention to where the conflict becomes the greatest and then the surprising reversal that's going to teach us a deep lesson about some really deep spring cleaning. Well, the setting of this story here in John 2 begins in verse 13. Follow as I read here. It says, It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. And literally in the New Testament Greek, it says He went up to Jerusalem. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, had the opportunity to visit Jerusalem, you know no matter which direction you're approaching from, you're always going up. And if you're leaving Jerusalem, you're always going down because of the elevation there. The text says that Jesus is going to Jerusalem because the time of Passover is approaching. Now let me just set some context here for us so we can appreciate the conflict that's going to come here later in the story. This idea of Passover, it was one of the three pilgrim feasts that every year all Jewish people had to go up to Jerusalem to observe. And the Passover harkens back to the story way back in the book of Exodus when that defining event that caused these Jewish people to become a nation happened. They had been in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. And these are the descendants of Abraham, the one to whom God said, remember the promise, Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing, and your descendants are going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This wonderful promise, it seems like 400 years in Egypt and slavery, maybe God's forgotten that, but no, he hasn't. So he miraculously sends all these plagues to free them, and the last plague, you remember, was the death of the firstborn children in every household in Egypt, including those of the Jewish people, had they not hearkened to God's warning. He said, when the death angel passes over, all of you who have taken the blood of a lamb that is slain for this feast they're going to have, you take the blood and you put it with a hyssop branch on the post of your doors and over the entrance to your door. Every house that has that blood on it The death angel will pass over and your firstborn will not die. And certainly, the next morning, it became very, very clear. All the Egyptians lost their firstborn. Animals, people alike. The Jewish people, blood on the doorpost, were prevented from that tragedy. And they're learning a lesson already. God delivers. God atones. God covers us through the shedding of innocent blood. Well, through their journeys in the wilderness and God giving them the law and the sacrificial system. Eventually, they come into the land, and you remember, through King Solomon, they build this imposing structure. By the way, that's a scale model of the temple and its environs that's on display in the city of Jerusalem today. You can see it. It's 
It's probably half the size of this auditorium. The thing's all laid out. It's a beautiful model that's been built. That building in its original uh, uh, size was about the size of an American football field, that whole compound there that you see. That's, that's a, lot of, lot, a lot of territory. And it was in that place that the Jewish people were taught God in his presence in the holy place, the most holy place, where the high priest can only come once a year and always with blood, with the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people, he went through this heavy curtain, this heavy veil uh, to get back to the most holy place. And the people were, were learning this lesson, our sins are only atoned through blood, and the place we do that is here in this real estate, on top of this, this hill in Jerusalem, that's where God is and that's where people meet him. And if you want to worship God, you have to come there. Now, it's interesting, around that temple were these large courtyards. And the name of the, these courtyards is known as the court of the Gentiles. You see, the Jewish people could go on inside. The Gentiles had to stay out here. But they were welcome. They were invited to come for worship. And that place was very, very important. It was like a picture of the promise to Abraham through the Jewish people who connect us rightly to God through the atoning sacrifice. All the nations, all the peoples, every tribe, tongue, ethnicity, everyone's welcome to come here. But the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, only into the court of the Gentiles. All right, that's a lot of a lot of context. But it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? God has made provision for everyone, not just the Jewish people. So when Jesus arrives here at this place, what does he find in this welcoming place for the Gentiles? Well, it's a bit of a problem, and this is where the conflict begins, and this is where Jesus begins his spring cleaning. Look with me in verse 14, and notice this progression as I read here. He's going to see something, then he's going to act, and only then is he going to speak. What does he see? In the temple area, and it's the, the word actually refers to the area of the court of the Gentiles, in the temple area, he saw Merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign currency, foreign money. Now, wait just a moment before we read further. Is anybody doing anything wrong here? Now, just picture this scene. And you folks that live in Lancaster County, you're not going to have a hard time picturing this scene. This huge area populated with people and cattle and sheep and doves in cages. I mean, it's chaos, it's noisy, it's messy. I mean, animals are animals wherever they are, out in the barnyard or in this courtyard. And so you got to watch your step. And so here Jesus coming to the court of the Gentiles, the place that should be quiet, contemplative, people here able to talk to God, think about what God is doing for them through the sacrifice. None of that. It's elbow to elbow. It's chaos. It's people hawking their wares. It's, it's animals. It's, it's craziness. Now, the things they were doing were not wrong to do. 
These people traveled to come to Jerusalem, and estimates are like upwards of two million people would come for Passover. They needed to buy animals for sacrifice, so they're providing a service that's important, and they all came with different kinds of coins in their pockets from the region or the country they journeyed from. Only the Tyrian currency would be accepted for the temple tax, so everybody had to do a little money change. The issue was not so much the service that they were providing. The issue is where they are providing it. So by this time, by this day, by the time of Jesus, the Jewish temple, this is the second temple. You remember the first one was destroyed by the Babylonians, then rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and Herod had started remodeling it about uh, 20 years before Jesus was born, thereabouts. So now we're about 46 years later, And at this time in Jewish history, the temple has become a symbol of Jewish nationalism, Jewish stronghold. We're going to make Jews great again. That's That's kind of the feel of this, right? And and everybody else we don't care about. And so the one place where they were to be a blessing to the nations The Gentiles can't come there now because they've been crowded out by these merchants and money changers who are actually corrupt. The Jewish leaders are corrupt. The money changers are charging double commission, commission to change your money into temple tax and to give you your change back from the money you gave us, we're going to charge you a second commission for that. The the whole system had become, you know, Jesus decries the uh, Jewish leaders like stealing from widows' houses to enrich the coffers in the temple. And the gold in the temple in this day, it was in the millions and millions of dollars in, in modern terms. Now, it had become a corrupt system. It was a system that was focused on people doing good things to get God to accept them, even thinking they're observing of the rituals God has given them. The sacrificing of the animals was in some way going to earn them favor with God. And Isaiah talks about this. He says, you know, God says this, your sacrifices make me sick. I told you to bring them, but the way you're doing them, the purpose you're doing them for, it's, it's actually offensive to God. Well, that's, that's what we see here. Instead of becoming a welcoming place for all nations to come and hear the message of the gospel, forgiveness through the shedding of blood, they're instead being accosted by consumerism and guys trying to make a buck off of you and preaching a very different kind of gospel. That's what Jesus sees. Now look what he does. This may shock some of you who grew up thinking Jesus is this mild, meek, mannered, sort of a, you know, not a manly kind of a man. Look what he does. He makes a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' uh, coins all over the floor, and he turns over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he tells them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. We should step aside from the story for just a moment and say, was this okay? (laughs) Is it okay to get angry? I mean, didn't grandma tell us it's sin to be angry? I don't know if your grandma told you that. Mine did. It's sin to be angry. I think what grandma was talking about was, uh, 
you can sin with your anger. But Ephesians 4 tells us very clearly it's not a sin to be angry. Matter of fact, Paul says, be angry, but then very quickly says, but don't sin. Because <laughs> we humans, we have a couple of ways we sin with our anger. Sometimes we internalize it, kind of turn it loose on our insides, and other times we externalize it, and people, pets, and property in the vicinity are not safe, right? So Paul says, be angry, but don't sin, okay? Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Anger is not a sin. It's a God-given divine energy to solve problems and to, and to pursue righteousness. Psalm 7 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. <laughs> now, God's anger is an is a expression of his wrath against sin and the breaking of his commandments. And every single one of us humans, we stand condemned, guilty before him because we've broken his commands. Jesus is not sinning. No, this is a righteous anger expression. I don't picture him whipping people with his whips. He's driving livestock around. And then he speaks to the, the money changers and tells them, stop doing this. He's now going to echo the words of Isaiah. He says, you made my father's house a place of merchandise and, and business and actually corrupt business. In Mark's version, he says, you made it <laughs> a place for robbers. Well, Jesus is acting like a Messiah here, and the disciples recognize it. They recognize, and we read here next, that um, they remember this scripture from Psalm 69. It was a psalm about David's life, but it also has beautiful analogies, beautiful prophecy of the Messiah is going to be like this. And look what they remembered, verse 17. His disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. Zeal for your house, Lord, will consume me. And the psalm says, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Well, we certainly see Jesus being controlled by his zeal for God's righteousness, right? God's name, the gospel of God is being compromised, and he wants that to be fixed, rectified, so that all nations can come and hear the truth of how to be in a right relationship with God and he says, this passion has consumed me. Kind of speaking of it metaphorically, but think about there might be a deeper meaning to this word, your passion, the passion for your house is going to consume me. The NLT actually includes in a footnote in some versions of it, another translation here, my passion for your house is going to be my undoing. Now think about that. Jesus saying, this passion is going to consume me. Literally, the word means to eat me alive. Let's keep that in our minds as we go on. The disciples see him acting messianically, and they're, they're like, yes, Zechariah says, there's a day when the Lord comes that there will no longer be merchants in the Lord's house. It's happening right before our eyes. Now, if the story ended right here and right now, you know, like we're right to the height of the conflict. Jesus confronts these guys, drives them out of the temple, happy ending. Temple's clean, merchant's gone, God's happy. If the story ended right there, we might say, okay, well then here's the application. Stop selling coffee and music CDs in the church lobby. This is not the place to do business for, uh, in, in God's house. 
I know there can be some abuses and people can, uh, you know, kind of be opportunistic with some of those kinds of things. That is not what this text is talking about. That is not what John wants us to realize because the story doesn't stop there. You see, the disciples are not the only ones who think Jesus is acting like a Messiah. There's some other people as well, so let's move on in the story. The conflict now becomes intense. Now we're going to get to the apex of the tension. In verse 18, the Jewish leaders also think he is acting like a Messiah. And so listen to what they say. The Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? (laughs) You're cutting into our business here. If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. Now, here's the irony of this whole thing. Jesus just showed them the sign that he is the Messiah. He came in fulfillment of Zechariah's words saying, the Messiah is going to drive the merchants out of the temple. It just happened in front of your eyes. Numerous times in Jesus' earthly ministry, the Jewish authorities asked him, show us a sign if you want us to believe you, and he never acquiesced to them. They, they wanted a magic trick. They wanted a miracle to prove you are the Messiah, and then, you know, we'll accept you. But Jesus, and Steve next week's going to talk about uh, this text right after our text today, uh, that Jesus knows what's in the hearts of humans. Jesus knows these guys, it, the issue is not more proof needed. The issue is a hard heart that needs to break and accept the proof that's already been shown. It's not an issue of not enough knowledge. It's an issue of resisting the truth that's already been shown them. And so they confront him and ask for a sign, but I want you to notice what Jesus does. He doesn't acquiesce and give them another sign. Instead, he gives them a cryptic answer. Listen to what he says, verse 19. All right, Jesus replied. Now, he's predicting a sign I'm going to give you. All right, you want a sign? Here you go. You destroy this temple, and the word you there is implied in the Greek language. You guys destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. It's cryptic for a reason because like when Jesus speaks in parables that those who are rejecting him already, it's, the truth is concealed from them. But his disciples are understanding the deeper meaning of this. Now, not yet. They're going to see it later. You destroy this temple, guys, and in three days, I will raise it up. Well, they take the bait and they immediately assume he's talking about what? He's talking about the stones here. 46 years, they say, this temple has been being built. Now, Herod started remodeling it in 20 BC. We're now just about 46 years after that time. Probably that inner section was built much quicker than 46 years, but the remodeling on the entire, uh, you know, grounds of the temple had been going on this entire time. And so the Pharisees are the, the Jewish leaders, included some Pharisees, no doubt, they, they are going to respond to this cryptic statement of Jesus, thinking he's talking about the physical building, and they are going to shame him. Now, this is an honor and shame culture. The worst thing that could possibly happen to someone is to have their honor attacked and in public, their name questioned. They are going to throw shade at Jesus in a major way. Listen to what they say. It has taken... 
46 years to build this temple. And it's emphatic in the Greek. You, you (laughs) can rebuild it in three days. It's like they're holding the mic. Boom, it's a mic drop and they walk off. Take that. I mean, this is a major burn. You think you can build this in three days. You know, those very words are going to be misquoted at Jesus' trial just before his crucifixion. The false witnesses are going to say, you said you can tear this temple down and that you will tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. The truth is, Jesus never said, I'm going to tear this temple down. He said, you guys destroy the temple. Because the disciples know he's talking about himself, not the, not the building. But the leaders miss the significance and throw this shade at Jesus. And so the conflict is at its very height now. Now's when the happy ending comes, right? Now's when the reversal comes in the story. What is Jesus going to say? to put these guys in their place. Here's where all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ need to just look and be amazed. John is very careful. You notice here, verse 21, John says, but but Jesus was talking about the temple of his body, right? John is careful not to insert a response in Jesus' mouth. They drop the mic and walk off. He is apparently shamed And Jesus doesn't respond. In other words, all this shame and brokenness and mess and people separate from God and twisting what God intended by this temple worship, all of that mess, he's taking it into upon himself. And in not a long time from now, from this story's point, He's going to take all that shame and climb up on a cross and pay for all of it, dying for the very people, these very guys that are shaming him right now. He's dying for them too. To truly provide cleaning, cleansing that only the shed blood of a perfect sacrifice can provide. Now, it's a beautiful picture that Jesus is ultimately going to cleanse the temple and clean up all the brokenness by becoming the replacement for that temple. He is going to be the new place where God dwells and connects with humans and humans find a way to be reconciled to God. Well, the story resolves with the disciples actually later coming to recognize the deeper meaning of this statement that Jesus made. We read it there, verse 21. Jesus, when he said this temple, he meant his own body, talking about his physical body. And then verse 22, John says, after he was raised from the dead, they didn't get it right then, but after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed both the Scriptures and what Jesus has said. In other words, they believed the predictions of his resurrection, and they understood the significance of this. 
you remember the story when, and you see it here on the, on the screen, in the temple between the most holy place and the outer courts of the temple, there, there was this huge, heavy veil. The priest had to go behind that veil to even get to where the Shekinah glory was and to offer the, the, the blood of the atoning sacrifice. And only once a year could he go there. When Jesus says on the cross, it's finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, when he dies, in that moment, you remember, the Scripture says, the veil in the temple was ripped in two, not from the bottom to the top like a human could grab hold of it and rip it, from the top to the bottom. The writers of the Gospels are careful to tell us. In other words, God blew open the way into his presence through the atoning death of Jesus, the veil, which Hebrews says was his flesh. He died. It's broken on the cross. He pours his blood out. And when he dies, now the way is open for all people, not just people who can come to Jerusalem and find a way to buy a sacrifice. And, no, for all people, the way to God, to reconciliation, to forgiveness, to the promise that all your mess in your life, the promise of forgiveness is your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. God doesn't have amnesia. He doesn't say he forgets them. He has full recollection of our sins and iniquities, right? But the promise is I won't remember them. I won't bring them up and use them against you. That is made possible through Jesus' death. And John is saying this to everyone. Jesus is the new temple, right? He's the new temple. This is the place where people worship. This is the place where people find their sins forgiven. No matter where your real estate is, what your geographical location is, all people everywhere find forgiveness and reconciliation through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. No more necessary to commute to Jerusalem. The writer of Hebrews makes this very clear, that Jesus replaced that old system. And isn't it beautiful how Peter talks about us becoming living stones in this new temple? We are now both the temple and we're the body of Christ here on this earth that others may come into God's presence through our ministry of making this known. Our high priest, Jesus, he offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, not year in, year out, over and over and over again, because Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats can't wash away sins. No, his single sacrifice was good for all time, for by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made perfect holy. Here's the lesson I want you to take with you today and think about this. Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, his finished work, this is the message of the gospel. He makes the way for all people (laughs) to be clean before God. Think of that. All the sins and failures of my life, all those sins all stacked up, held against me, Jesus took them all upon himself. Paul says he became sin for us and died for us and paid the debt of those sins so that now when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sins and failings and failures. He he sees the perfect righteousness of his risen victorious son who atoned for our sins 
through the shedding of his blood. That is the message of this story. And so if you have, as John says, we remembered that and we believed it. He's the new temple. If you have believed that, you look back on your life. For me, I was a six-year-old kid. Didn't understand all the significance of it, but I, I know it was real when it happened. I believe that message and my sins were forgiven. If you can look back at a time in your life when that's also happened, then today as God's people, we should just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus does make us right with God through his finished work. And if you've not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, then all of us here who know Christ would plead with you lovingly, politely, but plead with you, believe this message of the gospel so that your spring cleaning, the deep spring cleaning that we all need in our hearts can be a reality in your life as well. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the teaching of your word, the simple stories of the scripture that open up to us this beautiful picture of our Savior, the one who accepts the shame that should have been ours, the one who pays for the sin that was not his own, and the one through whom we can rejoice in the promise that our sins and iniquities will not be remembered against us. Jesus, we thank you. We, we rejoice and celebrate that this morning. And I pray for your people here, all of us, that there might be a deepened gratitude in our lives. And for any friends here who have not yet trusted Christ, I pray that today would be the day in their life when they experience the cleansing from their sins through belief in what Jesus has done for them. We ask it in Jesus' name with thankful hearts. Amen.